This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna, today, and I'm going to be in conversation with Hannah Gold and Gwen McCullen. Well, Gwen is an oral historian who studies the impact of trauma in religious narratives, currently a senior lecturer in Japanese studies at the University of New England and Ivan Country, Australia. Aside from co-editing the 2023 published Aromas of Asia, Exchanges, Histories, Threats, he has authored the book Dangerous Memory in Nagasaki, Prayers, Protest, and Catholic Survivor Narratives, which was published by Rutledge in 2022. Gwen is a 2022 Japan Foundation Fellow and National Library of Australia Fellow. Hannah Gold is a cultural anthropologist studying religion, materiality, and discarding with a regional focus on Northeast Asia and Australia. Holding degrees from the University of Melbourne and Oxford University, she is currently the Melbourne Postdoctoral Fellow in Arts within the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne for the project Mobile Mortality, Transnational Futures of Death Care in the Asia-Pacific. Hannah currently serves as the president of the Australian Death Studies Society and is the author of When Death Falls Apart, published by University of Chicago Press in 2023 and a co-editor of Aromas of Asia, Penn State University Press 2023. In today's conversation, we are going to discuss their recently co-edited book, Aromas of Asia, Exchanges, Histories, Threats, which has been edited by the two of them and published by the Pennsylvania University Press in 2023. Uh, Gwen and Hannah, I welcome you to this conversation and thank you so much for taking time to join me on NBN. Thank you for having us. Right. So uh, let me begin by asking you to talk a little bit about the context in which this edited volume emerged. Yeah, so like many things, this book actually began uh, during COVID or just before COVID and all of the lockdowns. Um, I had recently come back from doing some field work uh, in Japan um, and really started to think about the role that smell and in particular uh, incense plays uh, in how people craft a continuing relationship to the dead. So 
my kind of background being in studies of death and dying. Um, and I had the opportunity to run into Gwyn, um, a colleague of mine and at a cafe. And we just got to talking really about, um, you know, different things that were interesting us, different theoretical terms. Um, our work is quite different in some ways, but it has lots of interesting overlaps around Japan and death and memory and mourning. Um, and it, it emerged that, you know, this this idea of smell um, more and more captured our imagination and was also something maybe that we hadn't considered before and hadn't theorised before very much. So we really sort of take that more broadly to think about the role of smell within Asia um, and how it shapes histories and cultures in that way. Yeah, and I might just add to that as well that I guess um, one of those things that's really difficult in some ways is um, putting words to describe um, olfaction and and smell, and so um, I guess that we were we were thinking about trying to start a conversation, and it's certainly not um, not covering all all parts of Asia, but it's it's um, a beginning in terms of um, this kind of this kind of work that we and and I particularly coming into it a bit newer than Hannah, I think I, I've really enjoyed um, uh, working on this. Right. I think the context in which an edited volume is put together is really important. So it's uh, very interesting to know your side of the story. So, uh, mm -hmm. of course, we have to talk about the pandemic. And uh, what do you think has been the role that COVID-19 played in shaping our sensory ideas? I think it's really interesting. I mean, one of the more underreported or maybe uh, lesser known but <laughs> slightly terrifying consequences of COVID-19 is a loss of smell um, and a loss of taste. And one of the interesting things about, I suppose, the broader reporting on that, you know, as we were doing this book, suddenly, you know, everything came about smell. So we began thinking about um, COVID through smell as well. And, you know, the way that people talked about a loss of smell was often... Uh, really downplayed, like, oh, this is a sad thing that happens to people, but it's not the most important characteristic, right? It's not like they've lost their sight or it's not like they've lost their hearing, right? This is a, a minor, a relatively minor affliction, um, at least as how it seemed to be reported and and how indeed patients who suffered anosmia, uh, a lack of smell, have have talked about it. Um, and we kind of took that as a as jumping off point, actually, for the beginning of the book, for the introduction, is, is thinking about, like, why do we downplay smell so much? Um, but then also in the opposite, actually, why smell is so important for placing us in social worlds, for, you know, creating our social networks, our cosmologies, our how we, you know, interact with the world, Um and so, you know, we kind of start with this idea of a loss of smell during COVID uh, at the start of the book and then, like, link that through to this broad idea that actually smell is really, really important in all of these different ways that we maybe haven't thought about before. So it actually becomes a jumping off point for our theorisation. Yeah, and, and maybe um, even as we have uh, been working on this, I've noticed that there's, there's quite a few new um, publications coming out about aroma and smell so it feels like it's quite an exciting time as um you know more attention is is paid to this phenomena so um, but i won't i won't say anything more than that at this, at this question. <laughs> right uh, so my next question is uh, how do you think the mobility of olfactory sense make social worlds 
Yeah, so this is, um, I suppose, the major claim in our book, um, which is really to kind of try and hone in on what it is about smell that is interesting to theorise. Um, I think, you know, we kind of took the starting point that the argument for smell in some ways has already been won. You know, the sensory evolution that occurred in the humanities and the social sciences, this kind of critique of Western ocular centrism, pointing out how important other senses are. Our book kind of enters the field after that. So like, you know, all of that work has been done and brilliant work by many theorists. We kind of wanted to work out what particularly it was about smell that was so compelling for us and why we kept talking about it, frankly, Gwyn. Um, <laughs> and, and so we tried to think about the actual qualities of it. Um, and one of the ones we thought about is, you know, this smell has this real quality to get beneath your skin in a way. It has this ability to cross boundaries. Um, you know, once if, if there's an odor, there's a, a a negative smell. You know, you can't you can't get rid of it. Once you've smelt it, you can't extinguish it. You can't close your eyes as you do with sight. You can only kind of reframe it, reodorize it, deodorize it. You can only write over it. Um, and you know, it also, as I said, had that boundary calling boundary crossing qualities right it, it, it invades you in some ways and so we kind of feel that in you know you know how smell has that kind of inherently social quality um and because it does this thing because it has this inherently social quality it makes it a really interesting force therefore in shaping and determining things like the category of asia which i think Gwyn was really great in bringing that kind of theorization about Asian history and, and how we even think about Asia as a category to this book. Wouldn't you say, Gwyn? Um, I, well, I, I think it's uh, been great to work in an interdisciplinary team. So, you know, the um, the knowledge, knowledge that Hannah has on the anthropological side was was um, really important. Uh, and there's, um, there's some really important, uh, well, I think there's the anthropological perspectives in the book as well, but then um, I guess from my own background in history, um, thinking about, and I, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more um, in the rest of the interview, but the um, colonialist aspects of history and um, and I guess the first three chapters starting with um, a kind of a historical basis um, in East Asia um, was also important for, for this book which is in a, in a series on history as well. Very, very interesting. So would you say that a study of sense gives us insights to understand how the West is seen as different from the rest of the world? Well, well, ironically, I think uh, that, yeah, a study of sense on Asia um, really does give us insights into understanding the West um, and how how the West is perceived as well from other parts of the world. So, or it's not even ironic really is, is it? But um, Kelvin Lowe um, particularly has talked about the need for more studies on senses and on Asia. And um, so being aware of that, I think um, understanding the ins and outs and the complexities um, are, are really important to understanding um the west and the east and and those categories that actually need to be broken down um a lot so um if i if i might just briefly talk about the chapter which which i also put in for this volume um it was about endor shusaku who is a fairly well-known japanese writer for his stories of historical fiction 
and um, especially in the Christian history of Japan as a Catholic himself. Um, but of course, one part of his story is coming to terms with traveling to France as a um, young foreign student. And this is where he studied. And so his writing particularly picks up on perspectives on um, the East and the West um, through the lens of his protagonists. And so, you know, for some, in some cases, he writes through the perspective of French um, protagonists in Japan. Uh, and so within my chapter, I talk about, uh, say, for example, the idea that that the Westerners stunk of bara, so bata kusai. And um, <laughs> so I guess in some ways this was an Occidentalist view um, of particular smells. Um, but I also draw on uh, Mary Douglas and Julia Kristeva in thinking about dirt and, and um, the permeation of of scent um, and odors um, that sometimes you know can make make people even gag. <laughs> so um, so these were some of the things that I was I was um, picking up in in that chapter. Did you want to say right. anything else, Hannah, on that? No, no, I think that's great. I just I think it's interesting. You know, one of the things we were writing against in this book, in many ways, was kind of the the huge amount of pre you know prevalent stereotypes about Asia and smell that you know. From the colonial mm. period up until today that you know asia or asians asian communities are smelly are odorous you know mm. are associated with lots of different smells um and i think it's it's great to have those inclusions in the book that talk about the ways in which the west is similar is similarly stereotyped yeah. in different ways um yeah. as associated with different smells that we as westerners or myself as a westerner <laughs> might not necessarily be aware of yeah yeah, very, very interesting again. But, you know, when we are talking about aromas, we do have to talk about colonialism as, as well. So I wanted to understand the linkages, and it's something that, you know, the book talks about. So how do aromas help us make sense of colonialism as a historical project? Yeah, um, I think that's, uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, and, yeah, I think in the volume we are attempting to critique the idea of a, I guess, a Western sensory superiority to some extent, and there's certainly um, references to that throughout. Um, I, I guess that, the, as I mentioned, the first three chapters are that historical background within East Asia um, that actually describes a long history of awareness of the importance of scent and, uh, you know, approaching it through perhaps poetry or um, philosophy in order to, to really um, look at the intricacies of how it's understood. Um, and uh, I guess as well, um, then in parts two and three that we're, that we're focusing on case studies in various contexts and um, stressing that, I guess, um, oculocentrism has suggested scent and odour may be relegated as the base or primal, but at other times it might be trying to rid ourselves of smells. Um, and so you, in uh, chapter 10, for example, our contributor, Ruth Tilson, um, writes about the attempts to evade smell in the face of death. Um, I don't know, um, Hannah might like to say something about that as well, uh, but just, just one more, um, Shivani Kapoor's chapter 
on the Dalit autobiographical writing, um, there's the situation of colonial India, which is not really very explicit in this chapter, but it's I think it's implicit and that there's that she actually powerfully shows how a politics of caste and naming that draws on a what she calls a metaphorical smell of untouchability um, and then actual smells like leather um, uh, you know are, are a part of what she's talking about while there's brahmanical sensibilities normalized in colonialism and so i guess it's it's talking about the complexities of colonialism in in that indian context um, and also japan where the samurai were politically the upper caste and um, in the, the fiction, I'm talking about how the peasants were known by their smell. So, um, so I hope that's that's making some um, sense. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is looking across those different contexts and the kind of different arenas of colonialism um, across and within and throughout Asia. It's also, I think, for us to think about the ways in which like smell becomes part of that colonial project. Um, and, you know, thinking about colonialism as, as an attempt really to control not only, you know, people's people's minds and their politics, but also their bodies. Um, and so many cases we find in, in these examples in the book about, you know, real policies of hygiene and sanitation that are imposed, um, as well as those hierarchies of value that Gwyn's talked about. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of smell work being done on populations through about, you know, ideas of washing and dressing and cleaning. Um, and that then feed into these, as, as Gwen mentioned, these hierarchies of value where some people's bodies and some people's smells, some people's tastes are really elevated above others as a means to like, you know, create those cultural hierarchies that then become part of the structures of colonialism, um, many of which are around today. And we, you know, these legacies and ongoing ongoing projects of colonialism are kind of where the book confronts that within smell. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Right. And I think um, the question of race and racial prejudices are also connected to, you know, colonialism. So what does smell mm. tell us about race as well as, you know, prejudices? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I wonder um, if I can mention another chapter in the book uh, by Hu and Jurors. Um, which is mainly focused on, I think, Malaysia and um, Thailand. And um, it picks up on the example of durians, uh, which are, of course, <laughs> very well known for um, how powerfully they they smell. Um, but I think uh, they point out in this chapter that the, the um, co colonialisers in this um, context originally would would look on and could not understand how the locals loved this particular fruit um, because of the the very strong smell that it it made and I actually wondered if I could read you a little bit from um, from the book if if that was okay yes yes sure please 
Yeah, so just just on page 91, um, they, they had some very, very interesting kind of ways of, of um, uh, talking about the smell of the durian and how it's been understood um, across different um, or, or from different perspectives. So even going back to Admiral Zhang Pei, um, the Chinese admiral who sailed down into Southeast Asia, um, so 1407, who wrote that the foul smell resembles that of putrid beef. Inside there are 14 to 15 lumps as big as chestnuts of milk white flesh, very sweet and delicious to eat. And then we have um, early on, uh, actually, the, there's some Western accounts that were quite positive about this, the scent of the durian. So um, 1583, Portuguese Garcia de Horta, exclaiming that it uh, was the most excellent fruit in the Orient. And, uh, and then during the colonial, late colonial period, the Europeans really um, suggested that it, it stunk. So um, there was, for example, um, they called it strong or moldy cheese, vomit, unwashed socks, rotten garbage, decomposing corpse, and then a dragon's breath enough to make some people gag. Um, so, so I thought that this was worth reading just to just to pick up some of the um, discussion on on the smells. Um, but I, I guess I, I think that this chapter is really interesting because it's very um, it's thinking about the transnational um, situation, and and it. Um, you know, picks up as well um, Chinese tourists coming in and trying to get the durian um, because of, because it's prized and um, and certainly um, a, a different discourse to what the general the Western discourse has been about this fruit. Um, mm. and and did you want to say anything else? Way. Yeah, I was going to say I think it picks up on that way of thinking about race and racial prejudices, in which. Um, Smell is so immediate and so embodied and in some ways seems so natural or, you know, essential to, to how we encounter something. Um, mm. You know, it seems in many ways a-cultural and a-historical, right, that, that durians smell like something and that's how they've always smelled in all contexts to all people. But mm. obviously, you know, how we encounter the world through aroma is a product of, um, you know, our particular place in time and how we've been educated and, uh, Gwyn and I, for example, are both from Australia, which is uh, quite famous for things like Vegemite and other smelly um, delicacies that, that I'm sure quite offend uh, foreign noses and, and sensibilities. Um, and so it really reminds us of the ways in which our, our bodies are particularly located in cultures and times and, and places. And 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 so when we think therefore about racial prejudices, I think I suppose it reminds us the ways in which they are also constructed in an embodied manner, um, and we we kind of encounter other peoples through all of those kind of histories that we bring to them, um, but but perhaps because it is seen as so natural and so immediate, it's almost more dangerous because it's more difficult to point out. It's it's harder to point to as a thing that is constructed by a particular ideology. Um, it seems so obvious and therefore perhaps is more difficult to deconstruct. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, um, okay. Sorry. No, please, please continue, Gwen. 
Uh, there was there was just one other example I, I wanted to mention here, and that was um, Aubrey Tang, uh, who is a film studies um, contributor, and she she was so she was talking about some films, uh, and I just thought that it's it was interesting how um, Crazy Rich Asians she um, deconstructs in the chapter uh, for its Orientalism, um, where you know that all of the people appear. Um, as Asians um, in a certain way, but that the Asian American is raised as as a little bit above the women from from um, the local Singapore, I think it is, and so um, that was perhaps another another example. Um, although actually, it's not not connected directly to the the smell in this case. Right. So, uh, again, you know, in your volume, do you think there is a contestation of Orientalist olfactory tropes? And if you could give one or two examples to explain that. Yeah, I hope that there is. We kind of grapple with this Orientalist olfactory trope in the beginning and kind of point out the dual nature of it, right, that it has this kind of double focus in the one hand that historically and today there is a construction of Asia Um as, as a smelly, you know, a fragrant, you know, sometimes that's positive, sometimes that neg that's negative, it's perfumed, it's fragrant. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes it's, it's, it's smellier, it's unwashed, unclean. And that's kind of one predominant trope, right, that Asia is smelly, that Asia has a strong smell. But on the other hand, um, you have kind of tropes of Asia as, as lacking a smell, as being too sanitised, um, as being... Uh, too clean so you see that in things like um, you know statements about you know Asian body odor or Singapore being incredibly clean and incredibly um, deodorized right that it's over like hyper hygienic in certain ways um, and, and what we try to do hopefully in this book is to show that both of these are tropes right that they they are produced by particular sets of ideologies um, and particular places and times and are used for particular projects of power Right. And that, you know, instead of, you know, leaning away, I suppose, from engaging in the study of smell in Asia, what we actually need to do is to really focus on the details and focus on the complexities of how smell actually exists on the ground, how it's encountered, um, so that we don't just continue to either reproduce tropes or or ignore them, that we we try and, you know, complicate that picture and, and put it in perspective. I hope that's, you know, what we end up doing. Yep. And can I just add to that as well? Um, I think the uh, chapter one, right at the, the start, um, Lorenzo Marinucci uh, writes a chapter called On a Trail of Incense, where uh, he discusses, I guess, olfactory paradigms in Japanese culture and um, really contests the um, Orientalist tropes up front by a quote from Lafcadio Hearn, who was a European in Japan, um, talking about his first visit to a Buddhist temple where there was strange and weird smells. And, and so um, Marinucci attempts to, um, to deconstruct this and um, he does this initially talking about how um, that kind of oculocentrism comes from Greek philosophy, but then he also um, uses the Japanese concepts, um, including Nioi, where... Nioi in Jap Japan um, is not just scent, but it can also be color, colorful. So there's a synesthetic sense. Um, 
And I think the, that's the idea of synesthesia comes up a number of times. Um, I think in Aubrey Tang's work on Hong Kong and also in Saki Tanada's work on, on Lombok in Indonesia as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I back up exactly what, what Hannah said in terms of, um, you know, hopefully this is coming through and, um, and through the complexities of, of um, looking at these different examples. Right. Uh, I would also want to know how do we contend with visual and or olfactory metaphors when talking about cultural contact and mobility? When talking about cultural contact and mobility? Yes, yes. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, can you just rephrase that? I think there was a moment of cutout. Yeah. Oh, uh, you missed my question? Yes, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to ask, uh, how do we contend with visual and or olfactory metaphors when we are talking about cultural contact and mobility? Yeah, it's one of the really interesting, um, I suppose, challenges that we had in the book was, you know, obviously smell is an incredibly difficult thing to find about. Um, and, you know, as Gwyn, I think, said there, often there is layers of um metaphor and meaning right so if it's the idea of nui where it's a, a, a both a color and also a, a, a smell um or in other contexts it's sometimes where smell and taste are really you know tightly interwoven as for example in, in the idea of anosmia in covid right that that losing your smell would would lead to losing um taste <laughs> um uh, or as you said, I think in your question as well about the visual element of that, you know, some of these cultural constructs that we talk about and specific examples, you know, smell is accompanied by incredibly complex um, visual representations and attempts to create kind of systematized um, methods of describing smell. So, for example, um, in the ancient practice of uh, incense in Japan, but also throughout Asia, throughout areas of China, for example, in Korea, um, you see these incredibly complicated visual charts that are linked to poetry, which are then linked to imagery, which are then linked to kind of symbols in order to describe an array of smells. Um, and, you know, part of us, I think, part of us, when we kind of maybe wish that we could have made this book a kind of scratch and sniff um, <laughs> edition. I think, so I think we talked about that a few times. We do have a think about that. It's a very expensive, apparently. I don't know. Yes. I don't know if it would be entirely a pleasant um, experience for our readers. Um but definitely, like, you know, we we had to lean in in many ways on, on visual representations or linguistic representations in words in order to try and capture that smell because, um, you know, we can't transport you there and into the experience yourself, unfortunately. Yeah, and maybe um, as well as all that, um, and I think just, just what you mentioned before as well, Hannah, that, um, you know, taking bodies seriously um, is, mm. is really important and, I guess a part of that is also um, uh, taking the the um, indigenous culture often, which which has a um, kind of more knowledge in in different ways um, about about the place, about the location, and so I guess that takes me back to Saki Tanada because um, where she's talking about Lombok and the um, Sasak um, community, the indigenous community there. Um, which is hybridic as well because there's there's the Islamic influence, but 
but by taking that seriously and, and listening to um, the wisdom that, that is there, um, then that's another way of, of thinking about both the, I guess, the visual as well as the smell. Um, mm. Yeah, so, yeah. Right. So uh, could you please also comment on how the book is structured? You go, Hannah. <laughs> so um, the structure of the book, apologies. So it's just a lag there. Um, so yeah, the structure of the book, basically, as I said, this is an edited collection. And what we, we tried to do is, is structure it not um, by region of Asia, um, or by country, but um, instead thematically, because, you know, a central part of this book is, is thinking beyond, I suppose, beyond or across those geographical lines that, that sometimes divide up our study of, of smell and culture. Um, so the first part of the book um, considers poetics and philosophies. Um, it's very, I suppose, heavily influenced by historical studies and also in particular, a theme emerged um, around the idea of incense. And we have chapters um, looking at Japan and China, particularly medieval China and medieval Chinese poetry. Part two, uh, Making Sensory Boundaries, talks really about these moments of confrontation between different sensory cultures or different clashes. Um, and there's chapters here around um, Malaysia from um, Gwyn about Japan, West, as well as um, studies in, in Hindi Dalit autobiographies, and finally, um, film studies, studies around, um, you know, um, Aubrey Tang's collection um, and contribution around uh, the blind detective film. And then in the final part of the collection, so there's three parts, in the final part, bodies, life, work and death, um, we bring it back to the body and a, about that important kind of role that um the, you know, life to death or life cycle plays in, in articulating uh, smells. So we begin with a chapter on pregnancy uh, in Lombok by Saki Tanada and then move towards studies of, of um, work and waste in, in contemporary China by Adam Leben and, and finally end with, with death and a study of um, Singaporean funeral parlours by Ruth Wilson. Um, so hopefully it's a it's a very collection, but but one that kind of takes a more thematic approach to smell as opposed to a geographical or historical one. Right. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Last question: uh, What other stories or research topics do you think you did not get to include in the book? Hmm. Mm, great question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think there's so many. Actually, it's really hard to know where to start. Um, I certainly think that um, you know uh, the I wondered about the the Mughal Empire, um, uh, but yeah, but I, I mean I, I was gonna say I think you know you know we're not trying in this book. It's very difficult, obviously, to be comprehensive about um, an area of the world as varied um, and with so much history yeah. as Asia. Um, so it's certainly not. Um, you know, it's not comprehensive, it's not an ex exhaustive um, collection. And there are things, you know, empires that we didn't cover, religious groups that we didn't cover, histories of things like the Silk Road of natural resources um, that we weren't able to include. Um, I suppose for Gwyn and I, we, we almost hope that it's a departure point um, for people who are beginning to think about smell and theorise smell and incorporate smell into their work. Um, and maybe by reading it, they can then reflect on their own 
corner of Asia or area of the world that they're studying um, and contribute additional, you know, papers and and books around that in the future because um, I think almost what we've found is that almost every aspect of our lives is touched by smell, so it's almost an infinite number of chapters and inclusions that we could have had. Agreed. Well, uh, thank you so much to uh, both of you for talking to me about your book. It's a great and fascinating read. And I hope that our listeners enjoy the conversation. And uh, for those who have not read the book yet, please pick up a copy. Uh, thank you, Gwen and Hannah, for joining me today. Uh, thank, thank thanks you so, so much, much Ritipana. Um, and also, you know, I think that the when the soft cover becomes available, we're hoping that it will be at a very reasonable price and uh but there is an ebook as, as well at the moment as well so thank you thank you both of you thank you so much thank you very much thank for the conversation you.